0: Is that strange? everyone, it's Joe. Welcome to Strange Sound. This is episode 38 of Strange Sound. I'm going to start with my usual disclaimer. Strange Sound reflects my own views. It does not reflect the views of anyone that I am associated with, neither my employer, nor uh, my friends, nor my family, nor anyone I know, nor any of my neighbors. I know some of my neighbors vehemently disagree with me, um, and some not. Uh, which is pleasant. It's pleasant that there's a little mix here in our cozy little neighborhood here in Utica, New York. Anyway, uh, glad to be with you. I don't mean to sound all that jovial. We're coming into uh, Thanksgiving week, and it will be a Thanksgiving, um, as many have said, like no other, in the sense that... uh, Uh, A lot of people won't be getting together with their families, uh, mine included. My family's been kind of a shrinking party for a number of years now. Um, That's about it. Our parents are all gone. Um, It's just us friends. And we're not likely to see each other over the coming week, though I'm sure we'll talk at some point. Um, But that's that's just the COVID reality. My wife has some underlying conditions, so I, I have to sort of guard her health. Fairly carefully. Um, I'm older myself, so I'm trying to be as careful as possible. Uh, But that's, (laughs) I don't mean to make that sound like it's an undue burden on us. It really isn't. Uh, I'm mostly thinking of uh, what other people have to deal with uh, during this holiday season. It's going to be very difficult for a lot of people across the country, Um, people facing down COVID, people. You know who work as first responders and as uh, medical workers um, in in this era of surging COVID infections. It's pretty terrible, and the stuff that they're going through right now is as bad as it's been pretty much all year. And the fact that we're still going through this at this level of intensity at this point in the year, after what nine months of this, is just oh. Uh, mind-boggling. It's truly mind-boggling. If we had taken the steps we needed to take earlier in the year, you know, even with not avoiding uh, the arrival of this virus on these shores, um, even if that had happened and we had taken the necessary steps to contain it and to um, squelch it, um, we would be in a much better place right now. Very likely. Instead, we have 250,000 dead plus. We've got, what, 11 million infections? Um, Rising hospitalizations. um, The healthcare system constructed the way it is. And again, it's a commercial healthcare system. For the most part, private hospitals run by private companies um, whose primary motive is, if not... To make a profit, at least to um, to make the books balance. I mean, there's a level of profitability even in nonprofits. But <laughs> the idea is for any enterprise to make money. Um, nonprofit enterprises make money too, and uh, you know it's just a question of what they do with with the amount of money that um, that they earn that they don't spend on their own um, on their employees. that they don't share with their employees, I should say. So uh, because of that model, the private healthcare model is set up in such a way as to reflect um, the greater economy, which is built on a just-in-time delivery model, a consumer-focused just-in-time delivery model that minimizes investment. So there's less money spent on having redundant resources available like you don't want a full warehouse right when you don't ha- when those things haven't been sold you, you know whatever the items are whatever the widgets are whatever the units are that you're selling you do not want to have too many of them on hand because they're just taking up space and space is money and time is money right so you want to You want to supply orders as quickly as possible and have delivery just in time so that you're not paying for, you know, maintaining a large inventory. And that's how the uh, American healthcare model is. We don't want to have a bunch of extra beds, right? We don't want to have all these extra beds. I mean, sure, there may be a disaster, some kind of natural disaster or some kind of plague or some kind of virus like COVID-19. And we might need to have, you know, hundreds of extra hospital beds um, that would be redundant any other part of any normal year, right? We might only ever have, you know, 150 patients at any one time. So we don't need more than 150 beds, right? Except for those times like when you have COVID or when you have some other, you know, Natural disaster that's affecting um, your region, uh, yeah, you're going to need a bunch of extra beds. So you need to have that expansion capacity, but you don't want to have to maintain that in anticipation of something going terribly wrong, which often happens. Maybe not often enough to sort of work its way into the balance sheet, but does happen. You have to expect that once in a while you're going to need to accommodate a lot of sick people, a lot of injured people, right? Our system is not set up for that. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing hospital systems being overwhelmed all across the country because they don't have the excess capacity they need to handle this. And it's not just a question of beds. It's a question of skilled labor. It's a question of nurses and doctors and healthcare workers more generally AIDS that are properly trained to be able to handle something as severe as as COVID-19, which, you know, there are therapies. They've developed therapies over the, over the past nine months. Um, and, you know, there are ways to keep people alive. But it takes intervention. It takes skilled professionals on hand. And there's a limited supply of them. And there's a limited number of beds. And our hospital systems are being overwhelmed. Now, I can't say that that's, that's true of my, my local area hospitals. Um, there's really only one right now. A- and I don't, I don't think they're being quite overwhelmed yet, but numbers have been rising here. Cases have been rising. Hospitalizations have been rising. And we've had an increased number of deaths as well. This is not a particularly hot spot in the country right now, but there's potential. And the numbers of cases that we're seeing now are probably a result of people having, you know, gone to Halloween parties two or three weeks ago. And we're seeing the result of that. It's hard to blame people for wanting to get together. I understand that. And it's been nine months. And under really bad leadership, you know, we haven't really gotten anywhere in nine months. If we had better leadership this year then it's possible that, you know, we could have made some progress on this in the intervening time when we, when we first sort of slowed things down back in the spring. We might have been past this phase of it by this time if we'd had the right kind of leadership. And so people are understandably getting sick and tired of this situation. They want to see their families. They want to see their friends. They want to have a good time. They want to connect with people. It's totally understandable. I get it. But unfortunately, we have to take responsibility for the fact that we have a crappy government that fucked this up from the beginning. We have a president who doesn't give a shit about this, at least as far as, as public health is concerned. His only concern is his own ass, basically. He's only concerned with himself. What's good for him? That's all he cares about period. That's just the way it is. It's more than just him, right? But he's at the top of it. The buck stops here. The buck stops with the president. And he is, you know, he's the label. He's the logo on the side of this failure. It's branded with a T. This COVID pandemic is branded with a T. This is the Trump pandemic and it should go down in history as that not that he's the only one who's responsible for for the failure of our response he's had a lot of help and some from both parties but he he is the failure in chief and this is this is a you know this is a tremendous mess okay cuz people are going to come home this week they're going to they're going to get together With their families, they're going to get together with their friends, a certain number of people in this country. I mean, roughly half who don't really want to know anything about COVID anymore. They're sick of hearing about it. Maybe the folks that voted for Trump, sick of hearing about it. I mean, there are the people who are, (laughs) you know, this. Anyone listening to this podcast probably knows this, right? There are the people who support Trump who are true believers. There's the hardcore Trump supporters that are, you know, he is their Fuhrer. Um, There are the evangelicals who, you know, see him as the knight errant. You know, he's the sinner that God has chosen to redeem us, right? That's how they see him. As bizarre as that sounds, that is what they think. And there's millions of them. And there's millions of the QAnon type people who are just following him because they see him as some kind of, you know, authoritarian leader that they can cling on to. There's millions of those people. But does that, does that make up a majority of his, of his coalition, the, the number of people that voted for him, the whatever it was, 74 million people, I believe, that voted for Trump in the low 70s? That's a lot of people. I'm willing to wager, and I don't know because I haven't seen the uh, polling data. I haven't seen the election data yet. I haven't seen any you know in-depth analysis of, of who voted and you know that that the more reliable data won't be available for some time yet. But as we look back, I wouldn't be surprised if what we found was <laughs> I mean in all honesty I wouldn't be surprised if what we found is something like a large percentage of people who supported Trump were people like the folks that I went to high school with. I'm talking about, you know, the Claudia attendees of the world, right? <laughs> I'm talking about, uh, well, maybe she's a bad example. I'm talking about people who voted for Trump because they liked the tax cut. I'm talking about people who voted for Trump because they like the sort of pro-business stance. The fact that his administration and the Republicans more broadly have been pouring money into the, into the business community. Into big business. Through the CARES Act to begin with. But, you know, uh, in other ways as well. Just massively cutting taxes on corporate earnings, on capital gains, on rich people. They've massively cut taxes on rich people. And they like that. And so they support Trump. And they voted for Trump. And they advocate for Trump. And the way they advocate for Trump is by, well, frankly, um, grabbing the low-hanging fruit. Because you can't go around saying, well, he cut my taxes and I'm rich. He cut taxes for rich people. So I want you, the plebs, to vote for him. No, the way these people approach it is they latch on to the more populist language like COVID is a fake, right? Uh freedom. Stop wearing masks. You know, part of that is prurient interest as well, right? They want they they don't like the idea of slowing things down in order to fight COVID. They want the economy to be humming. They want everybody to be, you know, going to work and generating income and, and, you know, generating economic activity. That's what they want. They want, uh, they want their economy humming again so that they can make more money. And so they're, they're like mask mandates are ineffective. And that's the argument that they'll make. So there's a lot of people like that. How many? I don't know. A lot of people who just like money voted for Trump. And a lot of those people this week, not all of them, you know, because a lot of them, <laughs> a certain number of them, I'm sure are like the people on Fox News that spend their entire day, their their entire Fox News commentary show, talking about what a hoax COVID is and how all this stuff is unnecessary. But then you'll notice that they're broadcasting from a remote location. They're not sitting on the sofa or on the, uh, on the uh, anchor couch, you know, next to each other. They're actually in different locations. So, I mean, they're careful to socially distance over at Fox News. I'm sure they're very careful about it in and amongst themselves while they're advocating full-throatedly that people should ignore those restrictions, that it doesn't do any good, and that it's just a, an attack on our liberty. But you'll notice that they're all, like, phoning it in so that they're safe. You'll notice that, uh, like, Tucker Carlson is in a remote location somewhere in rural Maine. That's where he broadcasts from because it's safe. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the Trump coalition that are like that. You know, that know they need to take certain steps to keep themselves and their families safe. And so maybe they'll mask up this this uh, Thanksgiving. Maybe, maybe they'll, you know, avoid too much contact with people that they don't have a lot of contact with, ordinarily. Maybe they'll put off the family gathering. But on Facebook and on Twitter and elsewhere, they're going to say, oh, mask mandates are pointless. That doesn't work. You don't need to do that because they're talking to the plebes. But maybe they're more personally careful than that. But there will be, there's another part of that coalition, I'm sure, that is that truly does believe this is a bunch of hokum. You know, we're going to get together on Thanksgiving and we're going to have our family together. And I want to see my grandmother and I want to see my cousin and I want to see my nephews, and my nieces. Um, I want to see my grandchildren, that sort of thing. I've been putting this off for long enough. This nonsense, you know, I'm tired of this nonsense. We're sick of it. We're cooped up. We want to see our family. And a lot of people are going to do that. And because of that, you're going to see an enormous spike in the number of cases heading into, like, the Christmas season, basically. And particularly because, at least up north, people are going to spend a lot more time indoors because it's winter that's what happens in winter and the more time you spend indoors with other people uh, the more the virus has an opportunity to spread because those are the those are prime conditions for the spread of the virus you know in, inside some poorly ventilated space with dry heat You know, a bunch of people, you know, laughing and talking. Uh, It's perfect. It's perfect for this virus. And you're going to see, likely, you're going to see a tremendous spike after this week. It may take a couple of weeks for it to completely show up, but you'll see it. And, uh, yeah, it's not going to be pretty. It's upsetting. I wish I could say that that's... The only thing that people, the only bad thing that people have to prepare themselves for. But that's not the only bad thing that people have to prepare themselves for. We know this (laughs) because um, I believe it's the day after Christmas. uh, A lot of people are going to lose their unemployment insurance. That's going to run out because it hasn't been extended. Because the Congress and the President haven't done anything to um, extend people's unemployment insurance. And so that money is going to run out right after the holidays. And people are going to be left high and dry. And people are going to start being evicted from their homes. This is going to (laughs) be, I mean, during a pandemic, this is going to be a tremendous hardship for people. It's going to be a very cold January for a lot of these families. My recommendation is that I know this seems kind of hopeless, but my recommendation is that you get in contact with your congressional representatives and tell them that you you insist that they pass some kind of relief package as soon as possible. I think that's all we can do right now. Unfortunately, there's very little leverage. I mean, the Democratic response to this has been flaccid. They basically squandered what leverage they had, you know, back in the early part of the year. Old Nancy Pelosi was uh, saying, oh, don't worry, we'll get to that. We'll get to aid to states. Don't worry. It doesn't have to be in the first package. We'll get to it next. There was no, I, I often say second package is really a third package because the CARES Act was was kind of the second package. The HEROES Act is not going anywhere. No version of it is going anywhere as far as I can see. I saw Hakeem Jeffries on television uh, this past week, and uh, he was suggesting that there's that there's a side negotiation underway right now. I don't believe it. There's no incentive for them to do this anymore. There's no election that they're facing except for the Georgia runoffs, and those are very narrowly focused races. I think the Republicans feel pretty confident about those. But the Democrats should be, you know, they can flip those seats. It's within their power to do it. And uh, while you're calling your representatives to (laughs) encourage them to pass some kind of meaningful relief package, I would say, you know, if you can spare the, the time and the money to assist with the effort in Georgia to flip those two Senate seats, please do so. I heard some uh, suggestions as to what could be done on uh, Best of the Left. Uh, I think they've got links to to some of the efforts down in Georgia uh, that, that seem worth supporting if you are interested in supporting them. I would suggest going to bestoftheleft.com, I think, or .org. I'm not sure which. Just look for Best of the Left podcast. They have a website, and you know, go there and uh, look on the activism tab, and you'll find some links to some of the efforts down in Georgia to help people get get to vote, um, encourage people to vote, um, help people be eligible to vote, that sort of thing, and supporting the registration and the get out the vote campaign. That's, uh, you know, that's fairly important because if anything is going to happen, if there's going to be any relief for these workers, there's going to be absolutely nothing, most likely, between now and the inauguration, which is in late January. And that's a disaster. People are going to suffer over and following the holidays, and that will coincide with a massive spike in cases. In COVID cases and in COVID deaths. It's been said plenty of times. We're looking at a very dark winter. But if there's going to be any, you know, any early thaw of that dark winter, it's going to rely on those seats in Georgia being flipped to the blue side. That's not going to be, you know, <laughs> The results of that will not be some kind of massive progressive, you know, wave um, of legislation, some world-changing, you know, legislation. That's just a rear guard action. That's just a way to keep from from just preventing any chance of either relief funds or just the minimal the minimal legislation to help people get through this disaster. I'm sure the Biden administration is going to, you know, we don't want to give them the excuse to do nothing, right? And the perfect excuse for them to do nothing is to leave the Senate in Mitch McConnell's hands. If we can flip those two seats, then they won't have as much of an excuse not to do anything. I think they'll feel compelled to do something, and something is better than nothing. Let's face it, we blew the Senate elections this year. We blew them. And we blew the House. Lost a lot of seats. It's problematic. The seat here in uh, New York's 22nd District still hasn't been decided. But it is literally down to about 100 votes. With the counting of absentee ballots and affidavits. It's not going to go to the courts. Claudia Tenney is still ahead about Ahead about a hundred votes. She's the challenger. Anthony Brindisi is the congressperson right now. He's the Democrat. She's the Republican. She's a Trumpist Republican. And this district is the 22nd district in upstate New York is is a conservative district. There's no question about it. It's become even more conservative than it was 20 years ago. It's always been kind of a Republican leaning district. But uh, now it's just ridiculous. The fact that an election would be this close is, here is, it's just gobsmacking that this many people would vote for Claudia Tenney for Congress. But they did. And she might pull it out. She started off with, I think, a 28,000 vote lead. And after absentee ballots were counted, again, this uh, New York 22 is almost like a microcosm of the United States, right? A lot of the Democrats voted absentee, including myself and my wife. And so those votes have been have been flooding in. And it has literally cut her lead down from, you know, what, over 20,000 votes to 100 votes. Now, anyone out there who doesn't think that their vote counts, I want you to think about this very carefully. If Claudia Tenney wins this, it's going to be on the basis of about 100 votes, maybe less. You think your vote doesn't count? Take a look at that. And again, Anthony Brindisi is not my favorite congressperson, but that's about the best you can do in this district right now. Because we we got a lot of organizing to do. There are lots of reasons why people in this community could be could support progressive policies. Plenty of reasons. They need the opportunity to know that there's there's a difference to be made, you know, that voting a certain way can make a difference and can have a positive impact on their lives. They need an opposition party or a party, you know, whatever the Democrats want to call themselves. They need a party that is going to help make their lives better, even when there isn't an election. That's the thing the Democratic Party doesn't do around here, and it doesn't do it through a lot of the country. That's why uh, thats why this election didn't go all that well, except for Joe Biden, except for the top of the ticket fact is the Democrats are kind of stuck in this this 80s 90s mindset I've talked about this on the podcast before and this is you know look this is not this is not something you need to come to me to hear about <laughs> it gets talked about a lot you can't overestimate the degree to which Democrats at least, uh, political players in the Democratic Party were traumatized by, like, the loss of the presidency in 1972, Uh, you know, the McGovern campaign. Um, That, you know, 49-state loss uh, so deeply affected people like Bill Clinton and Gary Hart and, you know, all, all the people that, all the political figures that sort of came out of that era, came up during that era, and later on became leaders in their party. A lot of those people worked for for, uh, the McGovern campaign. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And it was traumatizing, you know? And the Democratic Party came back and won with Jimmy Carter, but it took an impeachment, a threatened impeachment, and the resignation of Richard Nixon for anything like that to even begin to happen. And almost immediately, the tide began turning. The new right sort of raised its head. Rick Perlstein is, is probably a really good source on this, <laughs> on that process that began in the mid-70s, 1976, and that took hold in the, in the 80s. And the Democratic Party's response to that was essentially, we're going to remake the party in a way that accommodates to Republican power we are going to try to be more like the Republican Party because we want to compete for the same voters. That's where Clintonism came from. That's where the Democratic Leadership Conference came from. It was basically, you know, we're going to be centrist Republicans. We're going to be fiscal conservatives and slightly more, you know, um, progressive on social issues, but not really that much. And, And, you know, have support like robust defense right by defense I mean militarism and imperialism that was the conscious decision that they made at that point because they they saw that as a way for them to win elections and and that's the that's the space they still occupy the leadership of this party still occupies that's their headspace you know they first stumbled upon it in the 1980s and the 1990s. And if you look at our party leadership, they're all in their 70s and 80s. And that's where they came up. That's when they came up. That's the ocean they were spawned in. That's the way they look at things still. <sighs> they, they can't really understand it from any other way. It's, it's almost like they were mentored by the Republicans. It's almost like a mentorship relationship. Where they still think, after all we've been through, not only through the Bush years but through the Obama years, what they did as an opposition party, what they did in in the wake of 2010, as far as like gerrymandering is concerned, and just blocking every every chance for um, progressive legislation, what they did during the Bush years. It's as if none of that happened. They still, the Democrats still talk about, oh, there's good people on the Republican side. Well, we can work with the Republican, I can, you know, Biden is like, I can work with Mitch McConnell. Really? You really think so? I can work with Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Chris Coombs is like, you know, well, in private, they all, they all kind of complain about Trump, but, you know... <laughs> Constantly letting them off the hook. Constantly helping them perpetuate this this fiction that anything other than their public stance has any political relevance. Letting them off the hook and not holding them accountable for, for what they do and the positions that they take and the president that they support and the fact that they support this president in rejecting the results of the election that we just got through. A president who still says he won the election, even though he didn't. They support him in that. And the Democrats, to a large extent, facilitate that. They normalize it. They complain and they hem and haw a little bit, but they let their colleagues off the hook. I talked about this at length uh, uh, in previous episodes, uh, so I'm not going to go into it in detail. But uh, I just wanted to say, um, just to reemphasize the point that <laughs> I have the sense that the reason why we did, why the Democrats did so poorly in the 2020 elections, aside from the top of the ticket, was because they failed to connect the Republicans to Donald Trump and to his policies and to his failures. And his failures are manifest. They failed to hold them accountable. And that's why they lost seats. And if Anthony Brindisi doesn't get reelected, if he loses by 50 to 100 votes or something like that, it's going to be because they didn't connect Claudia Tenney, to the very policies that she supported when she was congressperson. That massive tax cut and that health care bill that she put forward, that she supported full-throatedly, people voted for that, or they didn't vote against it. And again, just want to say this one last time. I know, you know, you're going to accuse me of being an electoralist, but in this case, it's true. If Anthony Brindisi, centrist, right, that he is, but still a Democrat, if Anthony Brindisi loses this race by 50 or 100 votes, that's because people couldn't be bothered to come out and vote. I'm sure we could have found 50 to 100 more people or 200 more people or 500 more people to get out to the goddamn polls and and mark the ballot for him. And as a result, we'll end up with Claudia Tenney representing this district again. Someone who voted for a disastrous health care bill that would have left millions of people uninsured, that would have raised medical expenses for millions of people. A complete disaster. That's what she wanted, and that's what she will try to bring about again if we give her the opportunity. And it looks like we may. We'll see. I think they're still counting. Maybe by the time you you hear this, uh, that will have been decided. But if if she does win, it'll be by a hair. And that's a damn shame. Anyway, that's all I got to say today. I'd like to hear what you have to say. (laughs) I sound like a broken record, but... You can leave a one-minute voicemail by going to anchor.fm slash sound. You can also reach out to me on Twitter by going to at, my, my handle there is at Strangesoundpod. Um, drop by, say hello. Uh, you can learn more about us um, at big net and uh, just follow the podcast link and uh, that, that will take you You will see a large image link for Strange Sound. You can listen to past episodes. You can share Um, share episodes that you like if you like any of them. If you don't, uh, you can comment on them. You can send me nasty letters or nasty grams or whatever. Just, you know, do whatever you like. I'd like to hear from you. What the hell? I hope you have a good, safe holiday season. And uh, that you get through it okay in one piece. I'm sure I'll be talking to you after the, after the Thanksgiving <clears throat> break, so to speak. So uh, look for another episode real soon. And uh, until then, take care. And we will be talking to you soon. So long.